0: 1st Samuel chapter 27 tonight you'll open up and just follow along I'm going to read this to you then David said to himself I will perish one day by the hand of Saul there's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel and I will escape from his hand and so David, and you might recall that now twice David has run into Saul. Once in the wilderness of Zip and, and second time in the cave of Engedi. And in both situations, Saul takes 3,000 3, men and shows up to try and kill David. And so he is worn out. We talked about this Sunday. He is like a partridge in the mountains. Verse 20 of chapter 26 tells us. He's fatigued. He's worn out. He is tired of this chase. And so he determines, I'm going to go live in the land of the Philistines where Saul won't come after me anymore. So David arose, verse 2, and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Remember Gath, the city? Who was from Gath? Who was the big Philistine? (laughs) (laughs) And Goliath was from Gath. David, once again, now you may recall the last time David went to Gath to get away from Saul and the people saw him dragging along Goliath's sword with him it just wasn't a smart move on David's part he was not thinking clearly and for fear of his life when he realized everybody's looking at him and they might come after him he started acting like he was crazy he let his saliva drool drip down onto his beard and he started acting Ooh, you know weird so they leave him alone and he got out of there well now he goes back to this same place and to this king named Achish who is a player in the story Verse 3 says, David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each with his household. Even David with his two wives. (laughs) Two wives, he'll have many more. Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Remember Nabal the fool. We talked about last week. Well, his widow. Nabal died. David marries Abigail. So now it was told, verse 4, it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, verse 8, David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites and the Girzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive, and he took away the sheep and the cattle and the donkeys and the camels. And the clothing, and then he returned and came to Achish. And now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of of the Jeharamelites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath saying otherwise they will tell about us saying so has David done and so has David been and so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines and so Achish believed David saying surely he has made himself odious among his people Israel therefore he will become my servant forever This is an interesting section of scripture Because by all accounts It sounds like David is sidling up to the Philistines It appears as though And it gets worse In fact over in chapter 29 He actually is going to go on the march With the Philistines In battle against his own people Israel What is going on with David? Anointed to be king over Israel What is happening? Where is his thinking right now? Now to understand this passage We've got to be careful as we move through it's one of those sections of scripture, and there are plenty of them that if you just are reading through the Bible, I, I used to try and do this, read through the Bible in a year. I got one of those hardback read one year Bibles, and my goal was to get through the book. And there were there were sections in there where I didn't even care if I understood, I just had to get through it. You know, I wanted to be able to say, I read the Bible in a year. And there were several big sections that, that as I was reading along ago, I, I don't get that at all, but I just kept on going, you know, didn't deal with it. There are passages like this where you have to move slowly. And you almost have to go word by word to really understand what's happening. And then you need to draw back and look at the big picture to understand what's happening. If we're truly investigating the scriptures to know what's going on, then we're going to look up close, we're going to look back. It's like taking a snapshot of, of Mount St. Helens from a distance. And you can look at it. It's kind of an overview. But if you really want to understand what's going on in the mountain and, and you want to you want to survey it, you go to it, you see it, you walk it, you go inside of the crater, you move around it. That's what we're going to do. In fact, that's what we pretty much do every week. Paul said in Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-seven, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul would say, I didn't leave anything out. We didn't go skipping and dancing ahead because this part didn't make sense or this part was so called boring or this part was another genealogy or whatever. No, we're going to do the whole counsel of the Word of God. We don't want to miss a thing. And as we come to this section of Scripture that is somewhat challenging, we've got to go carefully. Because to understand David's heart. You will see over and over that David is a man of duplicity. David, the man after God's own heart, has a tendency to lie. He has a propensity to falsehood. Wait, you mean the the writer of the Psalms? Yes, and I was even thinking today, David the musician, the songwriter, the psalm writer, we're so impressed with that. And isn't that just kind of the way we are? We are so impressed with musicians and songwriters. We are They'll they'll write these amazing songs And put out these amazing albums And we listen to them And we, we get them on our stereos And on our iPods And then they stand up And they open their mouths Politically And we go They're so stupid How can they be so dumb And write such great music How can David write the songs Like he does Amazing Fantastic As if he's standing right In the presence of God himself And still be a liar And I'll tell you how He's a human. David is a man just like me, just like you. How can I on a Sunday morning lift up my voice and song to the Lord and literally feel the thrill of worship, only to that afternoon go home and and yell at my kids? Corey asked the same question How can you do that, Dad? how can I lose my temper how can I lie to someone how can I commit these? all of us how can we commit these sins in our lives man just yesterday I was in worship just last night just a few minutes ago how does it because we are human beings and as we've said over and over as long as we walk in the flesh we're going to deal with this sin nature which makes it even more important that we spend as much time in the presence of the Lord as possible Because we have something to get over here. Think back to what we know for sure of David. We know the son of Jesse was a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. And as a shepherd boy, he killed a lion and he killed a bear. And he knew it was by the power of God. He was courageous by the Holy Spirit. We know he is anointed to be the king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. And at his anointing, God actually put his spirit on David. So he is a a spirit-filled man. We know David was called to be a musician for Saul That he would play in Saul's court And then he would go back and forth From Saul's court to play music for him Back to his father's sheep to take care of the flock It's kind of going from crazy to calm To crazy to calm And back and forth And David did this for much time And we know he becomes the great giant killer in Israel In that city of Gath In the valley of Elah lopping off the stone-embedded head of Goliath. We know after that that David moved full-time into Saul's court and really becomes Israel's hero. As they sang on the hit parade, David has killed his ten thousands, and Saul has killed his thousands. A song that was well-known in Israel and all the surrounding area. And as David becomes more and more Israel's hero, he becomes more and more hated by Saul. Saul's jealousy intensifies. And so Saul chases after David as we saw. The shepherd, the anointed, the musician, the giant killer, the hero of Israel becomes a partridge in the mountains. He becomes an outlaw in his own land. Among his own people. Why would God do that? He's, he's had such a great run and then all of a sudden crash and burn. Why? Because God was doing a work we talked about in David's heart. God's always more interested in our eternal condition than our temporary state. He was preparing David for bigger, more important things. But what else do we know about David? He misrepresented himself at Nob. We know that he feigns insanity before Achish and Philistia. And again tonight we're going to see David playing both sides like a consummate politician. This is is David. I got an email from... From Mary, if you don't mind me mentioning you in front of everybody, Mary Kennedy, Mary Kennedy, Mary Kennedy, <laughs> and uh, and the email was great because I was reading through it, and I think you just nailed it. She she was saying she's read through First and Second Samuel, got to the end, she said, she looking at David and going, "This guy is a very flawed individual." I think that's the exact phrase. He's a flawed man. I thought, yeah, exactly. Praise the Lord. Because once we understand that David was a flawed man, then we know that every good thing that happens in his life is a praise to God. We know it's because of the faithfulness of God at work, and we know something else. That our faithful God will work with flawed us. Amen. And I am so thankful for that. I am so encouraged that looking at this flawed man's life, who is still a hero of mine, he still does fantastic things for Israel, he still desires a relationship with God in spite of his flaws. And the Lord wants us to see it and know it. That that is what matters to him. Not the perfection. He'll take care of that. But the relationship. That's what he so desperately, dearly wants with each of us. David is this man after God's own heart. This flawed man. Now our story tonight begins again with David despondent and despairing. He's had enough. He is worn out. He's been on the run long enough. He's shown great courage in the past. But this man after God's own heart, you've got to wonder, even for a guy like David, how much can one man take? Ten years of running, and it's got to get old. My family was 15 months kind of moving from one place to another while we were trying to get our house built, before we finally moved into it. Fifteen months, and I was done. Ten years. Ten years. And David is just fed up. Now there are three things I want to point out in this chapter. And I read through the whole thing so you can get the the big picture. We can stand back and look at, you know, Mount St. Helens. Now let's go a little more specifically. Three things to note. Look at verse 1. David said to himself, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Did the Lord tell David to pack up and move to the Philistines? No. No. Here's the first problem The subtle reason behind David's choice To live in the land of the enemy David listens in Instead of listening up David listens in Instead of listening up The the Bible says David said to himself The literal translation David said in his heart David decided by his own understanding The world tells you to do that The world says Listen in What does your heart tell you to do? What does your heart say that you should do that? That's the world talking. The Word says the following. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs 3.5 And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. What does your heart tell you? Well, my heart tells me all kinds of things. When I start listening to my own heart, I just get confused. Listening to my heart just leads me into my chest and doesn't do me any good. And David does this. He leans on his own understanding and ends up in enemy territory to settle down and find peace. This is where David thinks this is a place to relax, in the land of the enemy. It's one of the great faithless missteps of otherwise faithful people. I call this divine deafness. And that is shutting my ears off to the Lord. Because I'm listening so intently to myself it's closing my ears to God in favor of listening to my own heart and the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17.9 a familiar verse the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it why would we choose to trust in something that's deceitful why would we choose to to look inward when we know we're just going to confuse ourselves and yet we do it all the time listen to your heart Well, my heart is a mess David, by the way, is not alone in this. Even Abraham, the father of the faithful, had his vows with divine deafness. Turn in your Bibles, keep your finger there and go back to Genesis chapter 12, all the way back, first book. Genesis chapter 12 has an interesting little situation that happens. It's right at the beginning where God is really starting to interact with Abraham. And Abraham, who is called later in the Bible, the father of the faithful. He's called the friend of God. There's a great relationship between Abraham and the Lord. Now verse 7 of Genesis chapter 12 says, The Lord appeared to Abram. And he said, To your descendants, or your seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. (laughs) It says, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And that's all great because he's in the land that the Lord said, I'm going to give this, this land to you. I'm going to give you this. This is yours. If I said to you tonight, I happen to have the deed to Rod and Barb's 10 acres right here, and I'm going to give it to you. They don't know about it, but let's say I actually had it to give. Let's say it was actually mine. They gave it to me. They moved off somewhere. And I said, Joe, I'm going to give you this property. He said he'll take it Okay so you take the property But then Joe gets in his car And he moves to Beverly Hills that is <laughs> That would not make a whole lot of sense to me I say, well wait a minute No I gave you the deed, the deed to this land Look at what Abraham does It says in verse 9 Abraham journeyed on Continuing toward the Negev That is the south The southern desert area of Israel but he's moving away from the center of the land Where God said, I'm going to give you this land You and all your descendants And Abraham went, great <laughs> this over here. <laughs> What are you doing, Abraham? And he kept going In fact, it tells us there was a famine in the land So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there For the famine was severe in the land God did not tell him to go to Egypt Yes, there was famine in the land Yes, there was hardship But the Lord didn't say, run from the hardship He said, I'm giving you this land You and all your descendants. But Abraham goes to Egypt in an act of faithlessness, divine deafness. By the way, in scripture you'll begin to notice that people always go up to Jerusalem and they always go down to Egypt. Because Egypt is a picture of the world. And Jerusalem happens to be a picture of the coming world of heaven, Mount Zion, and the world to come. And so people go up to Jerusalem, and you have to, anywhere you go, from any direction in Israel, if you go into to Jerusalem, you go up, because it's in a high place, it's up on a mountain. So you go up to Jerusalem, you go down to Egypt, Egypt is this picture of the world, and Abraham goes down to the world, and by the way, Philistia is also down. David goes down to Philistia. He goes to live in this other place. He goes because he has divine deafness. God told Abraham, this is the land of blessing. I'll bless you here. And by the way, in all of Abraham's travels, and he'll go down to Egypt a few times, God never once speaks to him when he's in Egypt. He only speaks to Abraham when he is in the land that he promised him. But not in Egypt. Interesting. I can't hear God. I've been praying and praying and praying. I'm not hearing a thing. Well, maybe because you're residing too much in the world. Maybe you're just spending too much time in Egypt and He's waiting for you to come back to Hebron, to the land that He's promised, to the people who are your inheritance. So that's Abraham, the father of the faithful. It's faithless because he's listening in instead of listening up. David is listening in instead of listening up. How about you? Oh, by the way, something to know about Abraham. It was while he was in Egypt that he employed... A little handmaid for his wife, a young girl by the name of Hagar. And I really wonder what history would have shown us with Ishmael and Isaac if Abraham had never gone down to Egypt in the first place, if he had stayed in the land of promise instead of heading south. He ends up with Hagar. He sleeps with Hagar later on. Ishmael is born. And today, we have the Arab-Israeli conflict that has been going on for over 4,000 years. Abraham went to Egypt because he listened in instead of listening up. David listened in instead of listening up. How about you? Do you have a tendency to lean on your own understanding? Are you trying to work it out in your life? Or are you listening up and saying, Father, what do you want to do? Father, what are you about here? Father, what's going on? Because it's not making sense to me. I've tried to think it through in my heart. I, I have no answers. Lord, what are you doing? And what do you want in my life? How do we defy this tendency to divine deafness? How do we get back our hearing? The Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 7, 11, 17, 29. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 6, 13, and 22 Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first thing you need is ears. Do you have them? want to double check? You've got ears. If you've got ears, hear. Jesus will say eight times in the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And I don't believe this is just referring to first time belief. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Oh yeah, that's how you become a Christian. No, that's how you continue as a Christian. That's how you walk in faith. By a constant nourishment in the word of Christ. If you want to grow in your faith, you have to hear the word. You have to have ears tuned in to the Holy Spirit of God. Now we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. And you know, because I've shared this with you, and the Bible teaches the Spirit speaks to us today. Not in a a revelation that would violate or go against Scripture. But God will speak into the hearts of His people. He will give us direction. He will tell us what to do. He does speak to us. And you think, well, I've never heard Him. So maybe I'm just out of tune. How do I get in tune with the Spirit? And for those of you who have heard the Spirit lead and teach you God's Spirit in your life, how do I stay in tune with Him? And the answer remains, the Word, the Word, the Word. You want to hear the Spirit Then you start listening to the Word You start studying the Word You get into the Word Because I guarantee you The more you know the Word The more you will begin to tune in And pick up on the frequency of God's Spirit Because the Spirit is not going to say anything to you In contradiction to the Word In fact what He's going to do Is bring the Word to life In your heart And in your mind And in your faith He will begin to speak Literally verses to you out of nowhere. Suddenly you'll have a verse in your head. Where would that come from? The Spirit is speaking. Listen up to the Word. To the Word. Well, David is listening in instead of listening up. Number two, David is lying for the Lion of Judah. He's lying for the Lion, is what he's doing. This is an interesting thing here. We're told back in um, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 9, that Jacob calls his son Judah a lion's whelp. And so Judah, the tribe, their their symbol as a tribe is a lion. And you know later on, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So that's why I say David is lion for the lion. He is lying for Judah. And during his 16-month stay in Philistia, he is sneaking over and he is fighting for his people against the Canaanites. Look again at verse 8. Chapter 27, verse 8. David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times as you come to shore even as far as the land of Egypt David is raiding out he is continuing the call of God on the people of Israel to clear out the land he is fighting on behalf of his people Judah Isn't this a good thing to do? Well, yes, but read on. It says, David attacked the land. He did not leave a man or woman alive. He took away the sheep and all the donkeys and camels and dogs and cats and all that. And the clothing. And then he returned to Achish, the king. And Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David did not say, against the Canaanites. David said, against the Negev of Judah. The implication is, I'm raiding the tribes of Israel. I'm going against my own people. What's he doing? He's trying to get Achish to believe that he's on his side, that he has actually crossed over, that he's he's a man of the Philistines now, and that these raids he's he's making are against Israel. And even to the point that it says, David verse eleven did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying otherwise they will tell about us. Saying so has David done and so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines. In other words, he goes against the Canaanite city or people, wipes them out completely because if he leaves one alive, Achish the king of the Philistines might find out that he is really doing battle against the enemies of Israel. But David wants him to think he is fighting against Israel itself. And he's going into the land of Judah and he's messing with the people of Judah and he is lying. He tells Akish, he, he shares about the region of his attacks, the Negev, which is true, but he's not telling who the recipients of the attacks are. No, I'm, I'm, I, no, I'm, I'm fighting in the Negev of Judah. So Akish assumes he's fighting Israel. He's not. You could call what David is saying technically true, but frankly false. He does share the right re- region, but he's not sharing the right reason. His loyalty to Judah is right on but he is lying and listen even lying for the lion is still lying he said this before doing the wrong thing even for the right reasons is still the wrong thing have you heard the candy cane story it's a great story people like to pull out at Christmas time about where the candy cane comes from a lovely candy stick of peppermint candy it's got the, the red and white stripes on it people say well the red story this candy maker said I'm going to make a shepherd's crook to remind us of the shepherds of Bethlehem. And it's going to be white standing for purity and red for the blood of Jesus. And it's going to wrap around. You've probably heard the story. Some of you may even have told the story in a Sunday school class. I hate to tell you, but it's false. <laughs> a man did not come up with this great idea. To, now, it's, it's a wonderful example. It's great for a teacher to say, Hey, let's think about a candy cane. What this, how does this make us think of Jesus? That's fine. But it's not a true story. And it's one of those many things. And it... I would laugh about it if it wasn't so tragic. But Christians who get on the internet and they start passing around a story to encourage other Christians and it's great in message but it's not true. It's a lie. And lying even for the right reasons is still the wrong thing to do. It doesn't matter. God does not use falsehood. That's what the enemy uses. Jesus said he is the father of lies. From the beginning, he's a liar and the father of lies. And that is the tool of Satan. It is never, let me repeat this, it is never the tool of God. He does not deal in falsehood. David himself even wrote in Psalm 25.10, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his his testimonies. David wrote in Psalm 86.11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Truth is a big deal to God because He is the truth. You might say, but what's the harm of David deceiving Achish? Achish is the enemy. And so David's over here doing this good thing, clearing out the land for Israel, protecting Judah. What's the harm of of misrepresenting this to the enemy? Who cares about Achish anyway? Read on. You'll see what the harm is. Verse 12 tells us again, Achish believed David, saying he has surely made himself odious among his people. In other words, he's a stinker. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. Now it came about, verse 1 of chapter 28, in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. Uh Uh-oh. David hasn't been fighting Israel, but now the Philistines want to, and he's in a sticky wicket. He's got himself in trouble. Now what's David going to do? He's been lying all this time. David said to Achish, verse 2, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. You get to be my bodyguard now, David. And so David, because he was lying to the king of Gath, is now beholden to the king of Gath, the enemy of Israel. Listen, gang, in these lies, we learn something here, and it is this. If we choose to live in the region of the enemy, eventually we will be tapped by the enemy for service. If we choose to live in Satan's land, eventually Satan's going to start asking us to do things for him. And the question is, will we be able to say no? And I have watched people in, in the church and in Christian lives stepping into enemy territory and thinking, I'm strong enough, I can handle it, I can deal with this. Not a, it may be a job, it may be a move. I can deal with it in my life living in enemy territory. Be careful because the enemy will eventually tap you for service, just like Achish does to David. I want you to be my bodyguard now. Literally, the keeper of his head. Well, it's translated bodyguard as keeper of his head. And now Achish and the people of the Philistia are going to attack Israel, and he wants David to come along. And it wouldn't have happened if David hadn't been lying misrepresented Akish has an assumption and here David is in a tight spot listen game the thing is this like it or not we live in the territory of the enemy today this world is the territory of the enemy this world is under the usurped authority of Satan and he is running roughshod and he is doing his thing. God is still almighty. But God has allowed, during this age, for Satan to run loose, to run rampant. actually, Adam and Eve allowed it when they gave up the, uh, the title, deed the planet Earth, biting into the apple. Handed it over to Satan. This world has a king, and he's not the same one we worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ Who is the image of God This is what the God of this world is doing Keeping people under wraps Keeping a veil over their eyes Blinding them from the truth The adversary The usurper of authority It's his world So we already live in the enemy territory How do we deal with this? What do we do? Without becoming His servants? How do we stay strong enough so when He tries to tap us for service, we don't give in? Jesus said in John 17, 14, I've given them Your Word. I've given them Your Word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask that You take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I shared before, this was a verse God gave me for Corey. This was one of those times when the Holy Spirit spoke very clearly into me through the word into my heart. When we were trying to decide what do we do with Corey and in going into high school and do we keep him in the Christian school what do we do? And I began to pray about it and Cheryl and I talked about it for weeks until finally this verse came to mind. Jesus saying, I don't ask that you take him out of the world. I don't want you to take him out of the world was what I was hearing. That I want you to keep him from the evil one. I pray for Corey and Hannah every time I drop them at the bus stop or every time I drop them off at school. Lord, keep them from the evil one. That's my constant prayer. Because Jesus said, I, I don't ask you to, keep, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus said, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, listen to this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And if we are going to survive in this world, in enemy territory, if we're going to thrive in this world, in enemy territory, we will do so by being continually sanctified in the truth. That is the key to standing up to the enemy in this world. Sanctification in the truth. It's not a one-stop shop that fills me with all the sanctity I need. Let's not show up Christmas once a year, go to your midnight mass and and you're covered for the year. Hey, it might be a great you know traditional thing to do, but it is not going to protect you from the wiles of Satan and the enemy in this world. Which is why you see people who believe in God, Christian people, not acting like Christian people in the workplace. Why you see men of God on Sundays going into the workplace, into business and being... Duplicitous. Why you see women worshiping the Lord on a Sunday, but in the workplace, not living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're in enemy territory, and the enemy is always asking, will you serve me here? Will you serve me there? Will you be the keeper of my head? Will you come into battle with me? Will you go get her and fire her? Will you go after him and tell him what an idiot he is? Will you do these things for me? And the only way to combat that is to be sanctified in the truth, constantly. Day in, day out, to be in the Word. Day in, day out, to be in prayer. To always be coming back to the Lord, to be spirit-drenched, Word-soaked, sanctified people, constantly renovated again and again by the work of the Lord in our lives. That's why we do what we do. That's why we encourage Bible study and prayer. That's why I'm here every Wednesday night. It's why we show up on Sunday morning. To continually motivate that constant sanctification that comes by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul says in Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. And in chapter 27 and on into the beginning of chapter 28, We see David listening in instead of listening up. We see this flawed man lying for the Lion of Judah, which is not the right thing to do. It's never the right thing to do. But there is one positive note. And in this we see the faithfulness of God. Number three, David is learning the lay of the land. He is learning the land of the Philistines inside out. The highways and the byways, the cities. He has free reign to walk in enemy territory so that when he finally does become king and leads Israel into battle against the Philistines, guess what? He will have a considerable tactical intelligence and Philistine geography and military strategies. He's even going to fight with them so he's going to know how they fight. He's going to see what it is that, that they do in battle. He moves to Philistia in fear, but God uses the move to benefit the future. Even in the wrong decision that David makes, God is still faithfully at work. There is divine development going on. In spite of his lying, his lapses in judgment, his faithlessness. And by the way, God's divine development is to me one of the greatest wonders of grace. The fact that He continues to sanctify us, continues to develop us, continues to grow us. He nurtures us even through our bad decisions. Listen to that. Even when we make the wrong choices, God is still at work nurturing us and teaching us and growing us. Even through the dumb things we do. We know the truth is that God causes all things to work together for good for, good for those who love Him. Those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 And I'll tell you this about David. In spite of all his flaws and all his failures, one thing is certain. He loves God and he's called according to His purpose. And so he is a man after God's own heart. He will mess up time and time again. But he still loves God. And he still knows he's called by God for the purposes of God. And that determines a person after God's own heart. Now going on into 1 Samuel 28. This chapter contains one of the most unique and curious stories in all the Bible. It is literally a ghost story. A story of how King Saul goes to pay a a visit to a witch at a place called Endor. Which is not an island moon. And the Death Star is coming around to get indoor. Actually, originated in scripture, not in Star Wars. And it is a place where there is a woman who is a medium, a spiritualist, a a, a, a witch. And Saul wants to go to her in attempt to conjure up or conjure up the deceased soul of Samuel. Remember, Samuel the prophet had already died, and Saul is is going to the Lord and asking, you know, do I fight the Philistines? What do I do here? What's going to happen? I need some some input here, and I don't have Samuel anymore. And he's not hearing a single thing from the Lord. And so he goes and gets himself a witch to try and bring Samuel back. This story raises all kinds of questions regarding life after death and ghosts and spirits and spiritism and the occult. But this story is going to wait until Sunday. Where we'll talk about it with the whole fellowship and come back and, and take a good look at it. And the, the seasonal title of this story, by the way, is The Ghost of Samuel Pass. So you can look forward to that Sunday morning. Now skip on ahead to verse 1 of chapter 29, which picks right up where we left off in verse 2 of chapter 28. Verse 1, chapter 29, tells us, Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Akesh. So far, David has been able to live under the radar in Philistia, raiding the Canaanites, protecting his own people Judah, but now the cover's coming off, and David is marching with the armies of the Philistines. Now he's in the back... With Achish, his king, and he's, you know, being the the keeper of his head, the, the bodyguard, protecting him. But the fight is turned against Israel, and David's going to have to deal with this question. Whose side are you on? Who are you going to fight for? Who are you going to stand with? Now remember, we considered this just moments ago. If you choose to live in the region of the enemy, eventually you will be tapped by the enemy for service. I think it's really interesting, by the way, just a kind of a word play in the scripture, and I don't know if this was intentional or not. But as a boy, David chopped off the head of Goliath of Gath. As a man, he is the keeper of the head of Gath. Achish. Bodyguard means keeper of the head, and so now that he's in the role, it's like the opposite. And it, by the way, is what happens often in our Christian lives that as a young believer in faith, man, we are ready to chop off the head of Goliath. But we begin to live life, and we begin to get a little more cynical, and we begin to live in enemy territory and adjust our living to that to the point that now, instead of chopping off the enemy's heads, we are the keepers of the enemy's head. The percentage of young people who graduate high school as Christians, but by the end of of college have ceased to go to church at all or have any relationship with God is stunning it's frightening it makes me as a parent with, with older teenagers wonder what can, how much more can I do I've got you know this short amount of time to get everything in them that I possibly can whether they're rolling their eyes or not because I know they're facing that crossing over point where they've got to own this or walk away from it And David, faithful, courageous, Goliath killing David, is now the keeper of the head. He is now Achish's bodyguard. It's a stunning turn of events in David's life. Well, So he's here, he's marching with them, and the commanders of the Philistines said, verse 3, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years, and I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day? But The commanders of the Philistines, who by the way are showing a little more smarts than Achish is, they say, they're angry with him, and the commanders, they said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him, and do not let him go down to battle with us. Or in battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? In other words, how's how's David going to please his God? By killing us! And you're bringing him into battle? He could turn on us in the middle of the battle. What are you thinking, Achish? Is this not David, verse 5, of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And then Achish called David and said to him... As the Lord lives, you have been upright. Now, he? Achish says, David, you've been upright. Really? Achish thinks he has been, but we know he hasn't been. He's been lying to him the whole time. He says, you're going out and you're coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight. I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of my lords. Had David been completely upright? No. He'd been lying through his teeth. And this character flaw in David will run its way through his entire life. It will happen again and again. It will kind of culminate in that famous story with Bathsheba, where he lies to protect himself from an affair, He lies to protect himself from a pregnancy. He lies to protect himself from the murder of the husband, of the wife he gets pregnant. David, the man after God's own heart. Because lying seems to be in David's nature. David will finally cry out in Psalm 51 verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. He finally clues in after the Bathsheba incident. Psalm 101, verse 7. David writes, He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. David starts to get it. But it is the black mark on David's life that he is a liar. He's a liar. Well, back to our story, I do think the the, the commanders of the Philistines got it right. They said, we can't trust this guy in battle. In verse 7, now Achish says to David, Therefore return and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, but but what have I done? (laughs) And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And I'm reading this going Shut up David Shut up You got your way out Shut up But Achish replied to David I know that you are pleasing in my sight Oh like an angel of God Man he has got this guy snowed (laughs) Nevertheless The commanders of the Philistines Have said He must not go up with us To the battle Now then Arise early in the morning With the servants of your Lord Who have come with you And as soon as you have arisen Early in the morning And have light Depart God provides a perfect way out For David the Philistine commanders don't trust him and they shouldn't God provides a way out for David to get his men out of there and not have to fight Israel which would have drastic long range consequences if David actually went into that battle so God provides a way out and David begins to argue the point with Achish why? what have I done wrong? there are some different perspectives of this some believe he was planning to turn on the Philistines in battle just as the commanders feared But the whole time he was playing up to Achish and eventually he was going to turn and fight the Philistines when the time was right. And the commanders, by the way, they say David might become an adversary and you've heard this word adversary before in the Hebrew, it's Satan. They say he might become Satan to us. Now, they're not thinking of Satan in the way you and I do, but the word adversary, that's that's where Satan comes from. It's the Hebrew word Satan, adversary. And I tell you this because the use of this word here is very telling as to the character of our adversary, of Satan. He pretends to be an ally, but at a crucial time he will turn on you. And this is what he does. The commanders of the Philistines, though enemies of God's people, they look at David and they say, he is an adversary he is Satan to us because in the middle of the battle he may turn on us which is exactly what Satan does well some other commentators they believe David was just trying to play this whole thing off to argue in hopes of making Achish believe that he wasn't intending to turn on them again even though he really was some others think David was on the verge of sealing his fate as a man of Philistia for good that he may actually have gotten that far out, so hurt, so betrayed by his own people and by his own king, that he was actually to the place where he was toying with the idea of just being a Philistine. The disaster would have been political, it would have been spiritual, it would have been relational, it would have sealed his pact with Philistia and his infamy in Israel, That would have changed the course of history. Today we would look back at David as that horrible betrayer. We would say he is like Satan. Personally, I don't think that jives with what David's been up to. I do think he probably was going to turn, but we can't prove it one way or the other. But whatever we think about David's underlying motives, listen, these these couple of chapters in this story is here for a reason, as everything is. But I believe the reason that it's here is that we might see and know and be reminded of again of the faithfulness of God, of the way God orchestrates things. Of the way God arranges things and steps in And in this story God steps in and saves him Now you might read it and say Well where? I don't, I don't see it All I see is David's not listening to the Lord He makes his choices He goes off And yeah he gets out of this tight spot But I don't see God doing it Where, where do you see this? I see it in song Look back at verse 5 of chapter 29 is this not David, of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now think about that song. Remember the first time we heard it? It's right after the slaying of Goliath. Chapter 18, verse 6. The women of Israel were coming out into the streets, and as David came in swinging Goliath's head, <laughs> dripping and gross and whatever, they're singing, David has killed his ten thousands, and Saul has killed his thousands. It's a number one record in Israel. Hit the top of the billboard charts. They sang it all over the place. They sang it so much that the entire region around began to hear it. But remember this. The more that song was sung, the angrier Saul got. And the more messed up David's life got. And I really, I wonder if it got to the point where David heard someone singing that song and would just say, Just shut up. I don't want to hear that song. I'm sick of that song. That song has caused me nothing but trouble. You know those tunes that get into your head, and, and all day long it's all you hear, just over and over and over. I have this this one song. Some of you know the performer Fergie, who I would not encourage you to buy her album. I don't have it, by the way, but I have heard the song "London Bridges." And it's a hit song. It's been out now for a little bit of while, a little while, but but it's this song that because of the the hook in the chorus, if you hear it once. You walk around hearing the song. Well, Cheryl heard it once and could not get it out of her head. And it, the, the, the chorus begins: "How come every time you come around, my London Bridge?" I, you know, I'm not going to tell you the whole chorus, but it <laughs> West plugs his ears. <laughs> but it's not the word; it's, it's, it's the, the tempo and it's the melody line, and it's the way she sings it, and it does get into your head. So every now and then, just for fun, I sing it one time, and all day long, I know Cheryl's got it in her head, you know. And I think that about this song. I wonder if we're on the campfire at night when David and his men are just hanging out there in, in, the, in the Negev or in Ziklag. I wonder if one of his men ever just went, David killed his 10,000... Shut up, man! Just shut up! Because that song was nothing but trouble for David. As they sang it, praising him, it made Saul more and more angry. And the more angry he got, the more vicious he got, and the more he chased David. And that song, we can tie David's messed up life for ten years to that song. And God uses that same song to get David out of a mess. Which I think is very interesting. The Philistines refer back to the same one. Hey, he's the one. David has killed his ten thousand. And Saul is in, and and David must hear this and go, oh, that song, that song, but that song saves David's life. That song that messed up his life now is saving his life, and I'm telling you this for this reason. God is an awesome arranger. He is the outstanding orchestrator. He's the perfect producer. And you and I may listen to, the, to our life song. To what God is singing in our lives. to what's going on around us. And there's, a, there's music to it that we don't like. And lyrics that we do not understand. And tempos that we just don't get. An arrangement that's just upsetting right now. In fact, right now, the arrangement of your life just may not jive with you and you'd just rather not hear it. And like David, you hear the song and you go, oh, man. If not for that song, I wouldn't have been driven out of Israel. I wouldn't have been driven out of of the comfort zone of my life. And yet it was that song that saved David's life, and God is doing the same with you. There is a song being sung, your life song, and it may be messed up at some point and not make sense to you and sound terrible, and you don't want to hear it anymore. But God is orchestrating something in you. God is orchestrating and arranging something in your life that goes to your salvation. That is His faithfulness. That is His goodness. And this whole story is about God's faithfulness in light of our foolishness. As we make dumb decisions and choices just like David, God is still faithful and He is still working out His perfect will. Listen, neither my sin nor my stupidity can deny the power of God's grace not my sin not my stupidity God's grace is still greater Timothy is told by, by Paul in 2 Timothy 2.13 if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself I think you know going to the land of the Philistines the right decision for my family because there's more money to be had there it's the job that I needed so I lift up my family and I move to this place to the land of the enemy because that's going to create more stability for us When I say, hey, I'm strong in the Lord. I I can sidle up to the enemy as long as I keep my wits about me. You know, I I can deceive the enemy and keep working for the Lord. I can lie about my intentions as long as I'm doing it for the right reasons. And David does all these stupid things, but it works out for him. Because God is faithful. Because when God anoints someone as He has anointed you in your life, when God anoints someone, He does not forget about them. He does it with a reason, with a purpose. This walk of faith, gang, is really not about me, it's about Him. I want to share with you just quickly two more verses and we're done tonight. Ezekiel chapter 36, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read it quickly. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22, where God is talking about Israel and being renewed. And by the way, I'm going to save this probably for a a study in a a week or two on a Sunday morning. It made me so mad. I don't know how much I should tell you about this right now. Just there, there's a there's a, a Christian organization, and um, they are really really going after Israel, and pointing the finger at Israel. And they've even come up with this manger scene that they're selling, and they're selling out of all over the place. And the manger scene is a, kind of a typical crash that, that you would see, except in the middle of it is a big fence, and on one side of the fence you have the wise men and the shepherds, and they can't get through the fence to. Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus on the other side. And it's a political statement about the security fence in Israel. And it's a big anti-Israel. But this is a Christian organization. I looked it up today on the internet. I'll tell you more about this later. And I was looking at this organization that is that is claiming to do good and do right things. And there is anti-Semitism all over the website. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking they've missed something They have not read what the Scripture tells us. What does the Scripture tell us about Israel? Now hold on, this connects to David. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. Just in case anybody's wondering who is talking here, it is God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name Which has been profaned among the nations Which you have profaned in their midst And by the way The the word profane there It doesn't mean that Israel was out there Making God's name bad It's that Israel were God's people And they ended up scattered all over the world And it looks to the world As if God is not faithful Because he's having to deal with and discipline And punish Israel And so he's saying, because of your faithlessness, now my name is looking bad. It's been profaned. But he goes on and says, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you back to your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Then I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. You talk about being a people after God's own heart God's going to give Israel a new heart And I will put a new spirit within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh And I will give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. And from the writing of Ezekiel up to present day this has not been fully realized. But I remind you that God is the one speaking here and that He made a holy promise that is not based on Israel's flaws or actions or ability to clean themselves up. It is based on God's name. I will do it because I am faithful. And we look at Israel today and see return to the land and see what's going on and and prophecy scholars all over the place are going, this is huge. This is not something that has been seen in 2,000 years of the church. We finally are seeing Some of this begin to unfold in front of our very eyes. God is faithful. The gifts and the callings of God, Paul says in Romans 11, are irrevocable. He made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your people. He will make the same promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, coming up in several weeks. I will make a house for you, David, and it's going to be eternal. And there will be a king, an eternal king, that will sit on your throne in Jerusalem. I promise this. And replacement theologians today in the church look at these scriptures and go, Oh, that's for the church. It doesn't say it's for the church. There is not a single verse in the Bible that says the church has replaced Israel. And I know some of you have heard me say this before. I've got to say it again. My concern is not that we hold to a certain theology, it's that we hold to the truth of Scripture. What does it say? And God says, I will be faithful to Israel, not because Israel is faithful to me. Of course they're not. Neither are we. But I will be faithful to Israel because I am faithful. And the whole story of Israel in history is a picture for you and me to look and see not the mess that they've caused, but the faithfulness of God. And the fact that he follows through a man, if he will do that with that people, then I have no worries about him being faithful to me. But I'll tell you what, if God cuts off Israel and violates his own promises, then I start to shake in my boots and think maybe he won't keep his promises to Rick. Why should he? If he's not going to keep all of his promises. I have more to say about that It's going to have to wait But I believe If David were here Right now And we were asking him About this story I really believe That he'd say Isn't it great How the Lord brought me Through that In spite of myself Isn't it wonderful How faithful God was Because I really made A mess of things But God got me out of it Somehow Wonderfully And I know he would say this Because of the last verse For you uh, Psalm 56 Psalm 56 which David wrote at this time in his life, Psalm fifty-six, verse one. Let me just read this to you. I'll send you out with this with this thought. With a psalm on your hearts. And I encourage you, by the way, go home and reread this Psalm and think about what David is saying here. David says in verse one, Psalm fifty-six, Be gracious to me, O God. For man has trampled upon me, and fighting all day long he oppresses me. My foes have trampled on me all day long. For there are there are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid I will put my trust in you In God whose word I praise In God I have put my trust I shall not be afraid What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words He distorts his words too All their thoughts are against me for evil They attack, they work, they watch my steps And they have waited to take my life Because of wickedness cast them forth In anger put down the peoples O God You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And then my enemies will turn back and the day when I call this, I know that God is for me. And just those four words, God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. And our story ends in that place, in the light of the living. The last line there of chapter 29. What does Achish say? He says, as soon as you have arisen early and have light, depart. And so David and his men turned and left the battleground. And the Bible tells us it was morning. Well, that's just when they left the battleground. I know it is. But it is poetic to me to think that David said, I want to walk in the light of the living. And God gets him out of this mess. And it's morning. And he departs in the dawn. Part of why I caught that, by the way, is because in the chapter before that we skipped tonight, chapter 28, it ends with Saul having visited a witch and conjuring up Samuel. And when Saul finally goes out of that place, the Bible says it was night. Saul walks out of the pages of Scripture in darkness, ultimately killed on the field of battle. But David walks in the light because God is faithful Father you are faithful you are king and you are God and we praise you for this and Lord I know I know that there are some struggling right now because life is not going well the song that's being sung is not making sense and the struggles which surround don't they, they don't cause any understanding Father there's confusion because of it and if we hear nothing else tonight, we just pray that you will hear. help us to hear the word faithful. Again and again, God, you are faithful. And you have a plan and a design and an arrangement for our lives and we need to listen up to you and not into ourselves. We need to walk in the truth and not the lies of the enemy. For Father, you are faithful and you have provided a future for us. And as your word says, in a hope... It's a living hope, Father. Teach us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.